The text for the sermon this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read 2 Samuel 7 verses 8 through 17. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The reasons that God's covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David should increase the joy of our faith is that the main point of every one of these covenants is that God is for us. That is, all of his omnipotence and all of his omniscience is employed to do good to his people, and you are that people if you follow him in the obedience of faith. The most practical truths any Christian can know are that God is sovereign, all-powerful, and that God is all-wise, and that God is altogether for you and not against you. If you believe those things, they will have a very practical impact on the way you use your money and spend your leisure and pursue your vocation and rear your children and deal with conflict and handle anxiety. Heartfelt confidence in the sovereignty of God who is working everything together for your good affects every area of your life. Deep emotional assurance. And I stress emotional because sometimes I think we try to equate assurance with thought. And thoughts are only the foundation of assurance. They are not the experience of assurance. Assurance is an emotional thing or it is non-existent. 
the deep emotional assurance that even though you are a sinner, God's attention is focused on you with omnipotent mercy is the day to day strength and power to give you deep peace when you can't go home for Christmas or to give you genuine joy, even though you can't afford the gift you'd like to get her or to give you warmth in your heart when the friend doesn't write when you expected. When you rest in the fact that God's job description for himself, for you, includes the responsibility of seeing that everything works together for your good, then you will not yield to covetousness or stealing or returning ridicule for ridicule, nor will you resist the impulse to tell your colleagues this week at work what Christmas really means to you. The reason we are studying the covenants is because in them we see the biblical proof that God's job description does indeed include the responsibility not to withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly, It does indeed include the responsibility to work everything together for the good of those who love him. It does indeed include the commitment to work for those who wait for him and to turn every strep throat and stripped clutch and stinging put down for your eternal good. That's what I would offer this morning as a definition for God's covenant. Some of you have asked me, what, what's a covenant? Anyway, you keep using this word covenant. Here's my definition of God's covenants with his people. God makes a covenant with a person when he reveals to them the job description he has written for himself in relation to them. And hands it to them, signed by his own blood for their enjoyment, if they will but trust him to do it. That's it. God's handing over of the job description that he has written for himself to perform. He simply says, This is how I will work for you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. If you trust me, you cleave to me alone. Now today, I want to look at the job description God wrote for himself in relation to David, or the Davidic covenant. And we'll do three things, and sort of they merge into each other. One is, try to understand verses 12 to 17 of 2 Samuel 7, so you can stick your finger in there. The second thing is to try to see how it works itself out into Jesus Christ. How is this covenant fulfilled in Jesus? And third, what difference does that make for us 20th century American Gentiles anyway, since that all seems so Jewish? All right, let's do those in that order. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. This text does what a lot of prophetic texts do. Picture me holding here a telescope that collapses, looking up there at that lamp, and I close it. The 
the outer portion of the telescope represents events that are far away and the This uh, little piece of the telescope near my eye represents events that are just about to happen. And when you close the telescope, all you see is one unit. That's what happens here in this text with events that are far away and events that are very close. That's why in verse 14, you read about Solomon fulfilling part of this covenant. It says, when he commits iniquity, Solomon that is, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, that's very close. That's just going to happen in a few uh, years after David's death. But notice verse 13 and verse 16, where the Lord says, He, that is Solomon, will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then look at verse 16. And you and your house, speaking of David now, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that threefold repetition in verses 13 and 16 of the phrase forever show that something far greater than the ministry of Solomon is in view here. No wonder that this covenant had a central place in Israel's history, because if you commit yourself to do something forever and you are God, you are shaping eternity by your very commitment. This is an important job description he's writing for himself here. Now, we notice in verse 12 That God intends for David to die, not live forever. Yet in verse 16, it says, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what that must mean in view of David's death is that his kingdom would be established by a, a descendant, a member of his household. But Solomon here is depicted as a sinner who needs to be chastened and therefore the kingdom could never be established in the hands of a sinner, as we're going to see in just a minute. Something else must be in view beyond Solomon if it's going to be established and secured forever. And I want you to see how conditional this covenant becomes as it develops through these history books Turn over with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings chapter 11. Here Solomon has just married foreign wives and begun to worship their gods. Now what is God going to say about Solomon, the heir of the throne of David? The Lord said, verse 11, to Solomon, Since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, that text shows 
that the promise to establish David's kingdom cannot happen as long as the descendants of David are sinners. Because the kingdom is always going to be ripped out of the hand of idolaters and rebellious sinners. The conditionality of this covenant is repeated again and again in Kings and Chronicles. Turn back with me if you want to see the text in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4. Here David, near the end of his life, tells Solomon that God said, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. You see what that implies? That means that as long as David's sons are disobedient, there won't be a man to sit upon the throne. The throne will be empty. Or at least will be in jeopardy and about to be empty, about to go into exile. Flip over back now to 1 Kings 8. Verse 25, 1 Kings 8, 25. Here we have Solomon himself speaking, and he says in his prayer to the Lord, Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, what thou hast promised him, saying, There shall never fail you a man before me to sit upon the throne of Israel if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, Israel learned in the successive centuries that when a king was righteous, the nation prospered. And when a king was rebellious, the nation was plundered. And ultimately, the kingly line became so corrupt that the nation went into captivity. Now, that taught them very clearly one thing. On the one hand, the promise is secure. David's kingship will last forever. The kingdom will be established. But all the kings are rotten. And therefore, the kingship is not being established. We're in exile. What could they conclude? All the prophets concluded one thing. There will come a son of David who is good enough to fulfill the conditions. Someday, somehow. Listen to the words of these prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. First, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-three. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people I will be their God and my servant David shall rule over them and they shall have one shepherd. You see, the promise had to include cleansing both of the king and of the people. Second, Jeremiah 23, verse five. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will be secure. And this is the name by which he will be called 
The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah stresses that when the son of David comes, he'll be righteous. He will fulfill the conditions of the covenant. And then Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a special case. This was a this is the gospel writer of the Old Testament, if there ever was one, because Isaiah saw that if the covenant was going to be certainly fulfilled, God would have to fulfill it. And therefore, Isaiah teaches that the son of David will be mighty God, everlasting father. It says in Isaiah nine, verse six, for unto us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And now listen how he links that in with the Davidic covenant and of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God himself in the son of David will fulfill the conditions of the covenant and establish the kingdom. In no other way could it be certain. We can learn a lesson from this. Every time you read about a covenant in the Old Testament that looks conditional and yet looks certain because God has promised it, know for a surety God will fulfill the condition somehow in some way. Now, when the angel comes to Gabriel, And says to Gabriel, or when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her, Luke 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will bear, he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We can conclude with surety that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the hoped for and promised son of David. The descendant of David who would rule and fulfill the covenant with this great king. He is son of David. And as Jesus said, Lord of David, and today he rules on the throne of David in heaven until he puts all enemies under his feet. And he rules now over a true Israel, the church. Now, the question has to be raised here. What does all that have to do with us? I mean, it is quite Jewish and we are quite Gentile and distant in America from all that, isn't the covenant with David only relevant for the nation Israel? Isn't it going to be fulfilled simply in the millennial kingdom when he sits on his throne and rules over the renewed people of Israel? No, that is not the limitation of the New Testament teaching of the Davidic covenant. The reign of Jesus Christ as the king of David in the world today has very much to do with you this morning 
and me. And I want to try to show you, mainly from Acts 15, that this is so. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15, verses 14 to 18. You remember the Jerusalem Council? All the big wheels gathered in Jerusalem around 48 A.D. The apostles, the elders, the people to discuss a tremendously important issue. Namely, do you have to be a Jew to get saved? Or more specifically, do you have to get circumcised in order to belong to the people of God to whom belong the promises? Huge question because... The apostles saw themselves as heirs of the Old Testament promises. The Messiah had come. He had died for the sins of Israel. He had risen, reigns now on the king on the throne of David in heaven, will come again to set up his established rule over Israel. What's all that got to do with the nations? With you in America, 20 centuries later. Everything. According to this council meeting. First of all, Peter gives his testimony in verse eight and says, look, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and the Gentiles when I was preaching. So we got to accept them. And then Paul and Barnabas give their testimony and they say, look, we've been preaching throughout Asia Minor and we get kicked out of synagogues and get welcomed by Gentiles. We've got to accept them. And then James, the most conservative Jewish exclusivist among them, gives the death blow to Jewish exclusivism. And he gives it with the Davidic covenant. Look at verses 14 to 18 of Acts 15. James says, Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And then he brings the Old Testament guns to bear. And with this... The words of the prophets agree as it is written. And then he quotes Amos 9, verse 11, which says, After this, I will return and I will build the dwelling of David, which is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up that the rest of men may seek the Lord. That's you. 20th century American Gentiles, that the rest of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, do you see what that means? That means that when God said to David in his job description back in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever, he had in view a house And a kingdom vastly greater than the Jewish nation, vastly greater than Israel. The reason the Davidic covenant is relevant for 20th century American Gentiles is because God's job description, which revealed to David, which he revealed to David, included not just the responsibility to establish a righteous ruler over Israel, but to establish that same righteous ruler over the church and over the world. And he reigns today on the throne of David in heaven over the church and over the world as our king and our Lord. Isaiah, you remember, said of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
This king of David is not going to rule over Israel only. He's going to rule over everything that can be ruled over. Or Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the angel says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When God has completed all the responsibilities in his job description, the house of David will be planet Earth. And the subjects of the king will not just be Jews, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now, here's what that implies for us. First of all, the mission of the church today is to submit ourselves to the son of David who now rules invisibly from heaven until he puts every enemy under his feet. We have a king, and it isn't Reagan or any sovereign on the face of this earth. It is Christ the Lord who sits enthroned at the Father's right hand and not long hence will leave that throne to establish it on the earth. Second, our mission is is to announce the good news to people in every neighborhood and in every nation that they can be happy subjects of this kingdom forever and ever if they will forsake the allegiance to the kingdom of this world and swear allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. Or to put it another way, personal holiness means learning new attitudes and patterns of a new kingdom. New attitudes, new emotions, new thoughts, new ways of acting under a new king and in a new kingdom. New customs, as it were, in a foreign land. And personal evangelism means telling people that the rightful king of the world, against whom they are in rebellion, is willing to grant amnesty to all who return and live under his rule. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the eternal king of the world, is coming again. He is going to rule every human being, whether unwillingly in hell or willingly in the kingdom. And evangelism is simply telling people, There is full, free, universal amnesty. Come home before it's too late. And I close with an invitation, and it isn't mine, it's God's, and it's so important, I invite you to look at it with me. It's in Isaiah chapter 55. An invitation issued to everybody with empty hands. And a hungry heart. And I don't think there's a person in this room whose heart is not hungry for God. Nobody is here who doesn't have longings that are unsatisfied by this world at Christmas time. So this is for you. The point of the invitation in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, is that the very sovereignty and wisdom and love of God that assured David of an eternal kingdom assures you of God's eternal kindness as part of that kingdom. Listen to these great words. Ho, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in fatness. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And then look at this. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. What covenant? My steadfast, sure love for David. You see what that means? That means that if you come to God hungry and empty handed, you will be David to him. Everything he has to offer David with all the love, power and assurance he offers to you. To be God to you or to put it in closing like this. There is a job description that God will write for every single individual in this room. And in that job description, he commits himself to the responsibility of working everything together for your good. He will be God to you. And all the certainty that we see in the covenant of David, guaranteed by the coming of God himself in Jesus Christ, guarantees that job description will be fulfilled for you. He will give it to you as an eternal covenant signed in his blood, never to turn away from doing you good. And so I invite you to come and adore this Lord with that great hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. Let's sing just the first verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. It's hymn number 193. And let's remind ourselves, as the verse says, that he is the king of angels. And if of angels, how much more of us and ultimately of the whole world shall we stand together?